At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the chance to sit down with Christina Cho, blogger at Eat Cho Food and author of Mooncakes and Milk Bread, the first English-language cookbook to celebrate Chinese bakery treats that was so coveted after it launched in October that it sold out and counterfeit copies started to circulate. Happily, real ones are back on shelves now. In this episode, we'll get to hear more from Christina about mooncakes and milk bread and shiny fruit celebration cakes, and some of her favorite things to make for Lunar New Year, including her grandma's beautiful steamed cupcakes that just so happen to share the same secret ingredient as my grandmother's biscuits. But first, here's Christina on some of the most memorable genius tips that she picked up early in her baking life. Learning to bake in middle school was my way of finding some independence in the kitchen because I come from a family of a lot of cooks. Uh, my, my grandparents own Chinese restaurants as, as their career path when they immigrated to the United States. So there's a lot of really good cooks around. And I think if I started going to the kitchen and was just like, oh, I'm going to make dumplings today, then there would be like a bunch of voices or people in the kitchen kind of telling me their opinions and like what I should do. But like no one in my family knows how to make a cheesecake. So I found <laughs> some, <laughs> so I found like peace and again, independence in there. So I think that's what really drew me to baking. It was like something that I could kind of like go off and learn on my own and teach myself and create my own opinions about like what would go into a really great cheesecake or cookies and things like that. Um, and I, I was also really drawn to these types of recipes because as a Asian American kid, I would see all this stuff at like other bakeries or at the grocery store and they weren't necessarily the regular things that my family would make or even buy for us. So that made it exciting. I was like, oh, I want to make the things that I see at my friend's houses or at the grocery store. Being in the Midwest for so long, like my my family immigrated there in like the late 60s. So they, they spent a lot of time in America. And I think a lot of the sweets there are um, like Midwestern sweets are like very fudgy, very sweet. And like it's kind of like a, a joke in like the Asian community about how like a lot of desserts, like the best compliment that you can get is from your mom or your auntie saying like, oh, that's not too sweet. Like that's the best thing mm. that you can hear because uh, a lot of Asian desserts, like you don't want them to be too like coyingly sweet or like give or feel like you need to go to the dentist after. And I feel like when I learned that like, oh, just adding some salt on top of like chocolate chip cookies or like, this is it. This is like exactly what we're looking for. 
something that's a little sweet, a little salty. And that is something that I have carried on to how I bake now. Like I might even be like a little heavy handed with like the amount of salt that I like to add to my bakers. But that is the flavor profile that I love, that my family loves. And I think just I truly think it enhances the natural flavors of anything you're adding into a baked good. And they get your mom's approval too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is hard to do. A lot of times <laughs> she's like, hmm, this is good. You know, like, but like, if she goes like, oh, this is not too sweet, like an enthusiastic, oh, that's not too sweet is what you want to hear. After this period of, of teaching yourself to bake, you didn't end up going into cooking right away. You started out your career as an architect, and you were kind of drawn back to food. Mm-hmm. That's when you started your blog. Yeah, I ended up um, studying architecture and moving to the Bay Area to practice as a architectural designer. And I also worked as an interior designer. And during that time, I was always cooking. Even in college, I was always cooking. I was always baking. It was my way to kind of expend any extra creative energy I had or relieve some stress in my life. Um and I first created Icho Food as an actual blog and like Instagram account um, during one of the moments in my architectural career where I felt like very unfulfilled mm-hmm. um, and creatively just like unhappy. And so making food, taking pictures kind of like filled that void for me. And it soon became something that I was thinking about all the time. Like while I was at work, I was brainstorming recipes or figuring out my schedule to like have enough time to like shoot something like on the weekend or like after work. I I was late to work a lot because in the mornings I would like practice by taking pictures of like my, my breakfast um, and eating it on the way to catch my bus Mm -hmm. to go to work. Um, But I, I remember during that time I was just exploring a lot. I was trying to figure out what my culinary voice was because I, I, I love to do everything. I love to bake. I also love to cook. I really started on a deep dive of making my own homemade dumplings. Mm-hmm. I remember every Sunday, I just spent the afternoon like in my kitchen by myself making dumplings, tweaking my dumpling dough recipe and experimenting with different fillings. And I still do that now, but it was a very dumpling-filled like time of my life then. And it just really taught me a lot about patience and just how much creativity you can have and use with such a simple recipe. Like a dumpling has so many infinite flavor combinations, also different textures. Like the dough is like one of the most simple recipes out there is literally just flour and water and a pinch of salt but like any change like even like a 10 gram change in your water content like changes the texture of your dough and different dumplings have different uh textures that you're going for and so I just I learned a lot during that time of making a lot of dumplings and through doing it every Sunday you had a lot of chances to to keep getting better and better at it it sounds like Exactly. Like I, and I started teaching dumpling classes and I I tell everyone, all my, all my students that making dumplings is all about practice. And the more you do it, you are absolutely going to get better at it. I don't expect anyone to like know how to expertly make dumplings like on the first try because so much of it is feel, even though um, I encourage people to use a scale for their dough. So they get like 
the intended texture, but then there's so many like outside factors like the humidity in the air. And so then you start to develop like an intuition the more you do something because you know what it should feel like. And that's something you can't really teach about actually doing it yourself. I feel like even inexpert dumplings are still going to be pretty great to eat. Yeah. Even if they don't like look perfect or even if some like explode, <laughs> you'll you'll still end up with something tasty along the way. Exactly. I Even an ugly dumpling is a delicious dumpling. I feel like that should be like a children's book out there. Like, it, like, like the, the pleading of everything is really just showing off. When you see like the beautiful or like expertly pleated dumplings on Instagram or something like that, it's really just a show skill, but like they all taste the same. And even a well pleated dumpling might not taste good if your filling's a little weird, you know? So like I, I just wouldn't stress about it too mm-hmm. much. It's really all about the inside, what's inside that counts. <laughs> In dumplings and in people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The first dumpling that I, I ever fell in love with was when I recreated my family's dumpling. Again, it's one of those moments that you're like, I, I never even tried to make my parents' version because they're always doing it themselves when I would go home. But I was living in San Francisco craving um, the food that my family made or my parents made. And I made my, it's the Cho family um, dumpling recipe that's like a combination of like pork and shrimp. Uh, which is pretty a pretty classic combo is pork and shrimp and cabbage um, and a bunch of different seasonings. And when I tasted it, it was like one of those moments like, oh, I'm back home again. Like it's crazy like how easy it is to kind of recreate that flavor and that that moment of recognition that it's like just right, like how it should be. So even if you're at home here in, in California, if you can make that dumpling, you feel like you're back home in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it like transcends. Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Christina as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit follow so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent episode with Brian Hogan-Stewart, host of the Salt and Spine podcast, who shared with us his favorite cookbooks from last year and what we can look forward to cooking in 2022. In the second half of this episode, Christina tells us about the happy pivot that helped her book, Mooncakes and Milk Bread, come together during the pandemic and recipes that you can make for Lunar New Year, including one with a stroke of genius that both her grandma and mine happen to share. Can you guess what it might be? Stay tuned to find out. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You've been doing your blog for a while, and then you get the idea for this book. Can you tell us about the decision to write your book and what, you know, what learning moments happened along the way? I think Mooncakes and Milk Bread is really 
special. And that's weird to say about my own book, but I think it's really special because there's not really anything out there like it. Um, It's a rare opportunity to be able to write kind of the first modern or like primary, like English written book about a subject. Um, Mm -hmm. There's not really any other comparable like Chinese baking or Asian baking book out there. So it's truly an honor to have that opportunity. Um, But it also kind of created a lot of interesting challenges that I had to kind of um, face on my own. Creating the recipe list was oddly easy, but yet oddly difficult to determine because mm-hmm. again, this is the this is the first book that covered these things. I felt like there were a number of recipes that were absolutely required to be in the book. You can't have a Chinese baking book without like pineapple buns, um, also called bolo bao. Uh, cocktail buns, you need egg tarts. Those are the iconic things that like absolutely need to be in there. But then at the same time, like me personally, like I, I love to share kind of creative interpretations of things. I hate saying fusion, but it's just like, it, it's just how I interpret this style or the techniques that I've learned for studying Chinese baking into creating something that's like more of my own. As an example, like some some of those things are like in the bun chapter, like Parmesan and sambal, sambal buns in there, like finding other ingredients that would work within the same style and dough techniques. So it was a challenge to kind of determine the 80 or so recipes that would fit in the book. And I really wanted each recipe to highlight either a story, like a facet about Chinese American life. I wanted it to showcase a different technique, uh, maybe a different way to pinch and pull dough into different shapes um, and a different flavor profile that you might not think about before. So that was kind of my mindset going into writing the book. And then when it came down to actually testing the book, I had about like a month and a half, maybe two months, of pre-pandemic life where I was just like carefree, like testing recipes, having as much flour as I wanted and going to the grocery store every other day to pick up ingredients. And then March uh, 2020 happened and all of a sudden everyone was making sourdough and I couldn't find bread flour at all. And uh, it was really difficult to go to the grocery store to find different ingredients. It kind of changed the way I approached my recipes and what the final recipes ended up becoming, um, before the better, I think they became a lot more efficient Mm. and streamlined. Um, I had a bunch of other recipe ideas that were maybe like a little bit more, I don't know if extravagant is like the right way, but you was like, oh, I wanted to like try all these different, different flavor combos or like find passion fruit or yuzu, but like I couldn't, I couldn't find it. And I was thinking like, I, I reminded myself that like, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. There was a tough, small Chinatown there, but I couldn't, I when I go home, I can't find those things. Mm. And I was like, I really should focus on like making this book as accessible as possible. Cause I, I just, I just knew that that was going to be a critique potentially in the future that like, Oh, like you might not need this baking book. It's not that accessible, but I think it actually is the majority of the book you can make using the basic baking ingredients that you can get at like a conventional grocery store. Um, like the main milk bread, you don't need anything from a specialty grocery store to make it. And it's like a foundational dough for a lot, a majority of the recipes in the book. Um, and I, so I think having that kind of restriction from the pandemic of not being, being able to access a ton of ingredients made my book what it is today. And I think that is why it's a very bakeable book. Mm-hmm. That was one of the 
unexpected perks of writing a book during a pandemic. So what did the yuzu and passion fruit recipes become? I wanted to do kind of like a yuzu, like custard stuffed, like milk bread donut. But instead, I made a milk bread donut with salted egg yolk pastry cream. And that entire thing, like salted egg yolks are a very common ingredient for both savory and sweet Chinese recipes. Um, Again, it adds that like salt, like that really nice kind of like salty umaminess to like a a baked good. Um, and so I was like, I really want to make a donut. I can't get these like tropical fruits right now. Um, and instead I was like, oh, I have salted egg yolks that I already made to make mooncakes and things like that. Um, and I found that like the saltiness and of course the egginess worked really well in a pastry cream. And that donut became, and still is one of my favorite recipes in the book. Um, and then for the sponge cakes, instead of it being like super specific, like you have to use passion fruit or whatever, I just simply call the the sponge cakes in there like shiny fruit celebration mm. cakes and left it very kind of like vague or vague, but more just like encouraging people to use like whatever fruit they have and just highlighting like, oh, like you can like fruit is like one of the easiest things to decorate a cake with because you don't need to like make sure your butter's cold or like have different cookie cutters and stuff like just have a sharp knife or literally just like delicately place berries to create like a really nice pattern. Uh, so again, like the recipes came, they became different and more adaptable. Um, well, this is a great segue to just talk a little bit more about your book, um, and introduce our listeners to it if they haven't already baked from it, or if they haven't already picked up a copy. I mean, a a really good place to start, I think would be to just talk about the, the two different treats that are in the title and why you chose to, to highlight those two. Um, was there like a special significance to those two mooncakes and milk bread? Yeah, I so appreciate that question because there's a lot of like subtle details, I feel like, in the book to the chapter or to the chapter names or to the, of course, the book title. I picked Mooncakes and Milk Bread because those are two very, I would say, iconic items in a Chinese bakery. But they're they're different in the sense that like a mooncake, I would consider to be a very traditional old school style of um, dessert. And that's like very rooted in Chinese history, even though there's a few other cultures out there that have a similar kind of like pastry, but mooncakes are like, I would say so very Chinese. And milk bread is also very Chinese, of course, but milk bread is something that's a little bit more modern and came to be part of Chinese culture through um, like in Hong Kong, like there's a lot of like British influence there from like British rule over like many, many years that brought things like fat and milk and butter into, into their, their diet and the way they develop recipes. And so I really like that dichotomy of something that was like very old in tradition, like mooncakes and something a little bit more modern, but still is tradition uh, by way of milk bread. There's a lot of traditional recipes in the book, but there's also a lot of like modern interpretations of flavors and techniques in there too. Would you mind also just describing how mooncakes kind of factored into your life, like what your experience was of eating them and similarly for milk bread too? So mooncakes are traditionally eaten during the mid-autumn festival, which happens like end of September, early October. The types of mooncakes that I grew up eating are primarily Cantonese style mooncakes. Um, and Different parts of China have all different styles of mooncakes. There's typically like some sort of crust and then a like dense, almost like fudgy like filling in the middle. 
sometimes it's savory filled with like pork but I grew up with the Cantonese style ones that I would akin to like a fig new in like the dough is kind of like soft a little chewy um, has some give to it and the filling so many different filling options like classic ones are red bean paste light lotus paste um a lot of times you find like nuts mixed with like honey or some type of syrup in there and then my favorite ones ha always had a salted egg yolk in the middle because I like the flavor of that saltiness compared with like the sweet fudgy filling around it um, and they're typically stamped with like a very beautiful beautiful intricately carved mold um, traditional ones are made out of wood and then the newer ones that I prefer to use I find them a lot easier to use are just like plastic plunger style mooncake molds and they're one of my favorite kitchen tools uh, I use them a lot during the holidays to make cookies too so they're not only for mooncakes they seem like they would be really really challenging to make but I know that you have said that they're really not do you have any words of encouragement for home bakers to try them out themselves? Um, Mooncakes get a bad rap for it being a really unattainable recipe to make just because they're just so beautiful. You get taken aback. You're like, how can I ever make anything so beautiful? But you really just think about how all that comes from the mold that you're using. You know, it's just it's created in there. All you're doing is stamping it. Um, my grandma used to tell me that like only a true master can make mooncakes just but she doesn't make mooncakes. Um, and so when I started to make them on my own, I realized like, oh, it's really not that hard. Like I've done so many other types of recipes that were much more labor intensive. Like if any, anyone has ever tried making like a French macaroon before, like that is like, I never want to do that ever again. <laughs> but moon, moon, <laughs> mooncakes, like you can, like there's two style mooncakes in my book. There's like a traditional red bean mooncake of a salted egg yolk. And that's like a much more, if you want to make all the components from scratch, you can, you can feel like a true mooncake master. But then the honey pistachio mooncakes, you can make all of that within an hour. Like, it's wow. really not that hard. Like, I wanted to create a filling that was delicious, somewhat traditional using, like, nuts and something sweet in there. Um, has a little bit of, like, a baklava kind of, like, flavor vibe in there. But still, the use of nuts and sweetness is very, like, Chinese for mooncakes. If you have a food processor, that takes a few minutes to whiz up. And the hardest thing about making mooncakes is really just, like, acquiring a mold um, although you can just kind of make them round, but it's finding a mold and then finding like the golden syrup to make sure your dough is like nice and supple, but you can get that online or at like a specialty grocery store. So that's really the only challenging part. Actually making them is very, very easy. In my family during or after dinner, you would have like a platter of mooncakes and the intention is to share mooncakes. You rarely ever eat an entire mooncake to yourself. Um, one, because they're pretty like rich uh like especially like a big moon cake like it's hard to eat an entire one and then the second part is just for tradition like a moon cake you should be splitting with your family because it kind of symbolizes like gathering and togetherness uh, so you kind of cut it into different wedges and you, and you sample the different flavors have a cup of tea and that's how you would end your uh family meal together and then for milk bread i ate a ton of milk bread as a kid because I was just obsessed with um I think it, it, I think milk bread appeals to like children a lot especially kids that don't like eating like crust on their sandwiches like you always ask your parents to like cut it off um because milk bread is just like so soft even the crust of milk bread is like barely existent like it's just mm -hmm. like a thin little layer it's still very very soft 
Um, and I ate it all the time because it's the base for essentially all of the baked buns that you find at a Chinese bakery. Um, it's, it's kind of surprising. A lot, a lot of readers have told me like, Oh, I never realized that it was like the same dough. And like, that's the magic of milk bread. It's like so versatile. You can form it into a loaf and cut it to make like really great, uh, like turkey clubs or grilled cheese sandwiches or peanut butter just sandwiches, or you can use it to make like cinnamon rolls. Like it's just an en enriched dough that would take place of like brioche or challah in any other type of situation. And then of course it's a, a great dough to, twist and form into different designs because it has a, a nice like elasticity it stretches nicely and so a lot of the different bun styles in the book teach you how to form it into like a spiral flower or you can roll it up and kind of make it look like a coil or you don't have to form it at all you can kind of treat it like a pizza and top it with like uh, corn and cheese it's really hard not to resist eating like a slice while it's still warm mm -hmm. and like putting like butter on it so that it melts a little. Wow. Yum. Do you find yourself making it really often? Yeah. <laughs> I noticed in your book, um, your um, Papa's recipe for steamed cupcakes, her secret ingredient is exactly what my grandmother always used to make her biscuits, Bisquick, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, please, please tell me more about that recipe, you know, how it showed up in your life, what it was like, you know, recreating it. I remember growing up and I would go to my grandparents' house and you walk into the kitchen first because we would enter through the back, but I would always see like a box of Bisquick on top of their refrigerator, multiple boxes of Bisquick. And I I was like, why? I, I, I never voiced it though. I never really questioned anything. I'd always just noticed that there was this like box of Bisquick. And I was like, oh, maybe they got it years ago. And they're like so like frugal that they reuse boxes for things to like hold other stuff. I'm like, I bet there's something else other than Bisquick in there. Um, and then when I was writing the book, I like absolutely wanted to make sure I had my grandma or I call her Papa, uh, Papa's steamed cupcakes in there because they're such like a staple and like simple Lunar New Year for my family and for like a lot of other people. And uh, I couldn't fly back because it was during the pandemic. I couldn't fly back to see my grandma. So I asked my mom to like record her making her cupcakes and that's when we like realized they're like, oh, she uses Bisquick. So she actually uses Bisquick in her, <laughs> in her cupcake recipe. And I was like, what? Really? And I, and I, I got there, I figured out the ratios with Bisquick. And then for a time, I did keep an option in there to like not use Bisquick. I like try to figure out an option that way, but it just never, it just never turned out the same way even even though bisquick like the big differences between bisquick and just like regular flour or self-rising flour is like the addition of like baking soda i can't remember baking soda like some leavener in there mm -hmm. and then there's like some hydrogenated like oil for like tenderness but there's also probably some other chemical in there that just makes <laughs> whatever you add so much better and so i was like i'm just not going to add this non-bisquick option in there because it's just not as good uh, so i took that out and then just you know try to reignite the use of Bisquick for people if they want to make these cupcakes. <laughs> uh, but it's a really simple recipe. It's Bisquick, but then also some all-purpose flour in there, water and brown sugar. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of like mix it up. It's a really kind of like thin-ish batter. Like you can pour it uh, and then you pour it into like individual tart molds or cupcake molds with like a paper liner and then you steam them. And uh, the taller, so when you steam it, the cake kind of like bursts and blossoms 
Um, sometimes they divide, if you see the picture, they sometimes divide into like three segments or four or five. And the bigger and taller that they bloom, the more prosperous your year is going to be. Um, so that's where the symbolism comes from and why a lot of people make them for Lunar New Year. When you were testing them, did you have, was it tricky at all to to get the bisquick ratios right? Or did the problems only kind of come up um, when you tried to go away from the bisquick? And the reason I ask is because even though it is a pre-made mix, I still have struggled sometimes to make the biscuits mm-hmm. the way that my grandmother makes them with bisquick. Yeah. yeah. I, I had problems the whole time between <laughs> making like between making my grandma's version and then also trying to make the non-bisquick version uh because my grandma like her recipe her recipes are non-existent they're just like she uses she has like a mug like a specific mug that she uses for measuring anything and her tip to me her genius tip to me was like hey you should invest in a measuring cup and I'm like yeah I should but that was like her (laughs) tip to me but otherwise she just uses like a mug to measure everything so the proportions are just are they ended up being um like equal equal to like flour and then just finding out the right water and like what consistency it should be just took a lot of trial and error it just seems like some of the simplest recipes that only have like three to four ingredients are like the most difficult ones because they're so reliant on just those three pillars to make Mm -hmm. sure that the recipe is successful um and i i've had i had a bunch of uh trials where my cupcakes did not blossom and I felt very like am I cursed now that like <laughs> is this over like is this not bode well that my cupcakes didn't blossom um but then I I eventually got there and I, I hope I hopefully redeemed any negative any negative vibes I got from non-blossoming cupcakes <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, I, I hope that it's like it's where you land not not the first ones yeah yeah it's about determine the journey, your prosperity you know, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, my grandmother um, just would pour the milk in until it looked right. She didn't measure it either. So right. yeah. that was part of the problem. And then also like the fact that you can, if you're making biscuits or something like that, you can overwork it. Like you can end up with, mm-hmm. with biscuit biscuits that are flat. So, but I, I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully that didn't come into play with yours because you're not like working them as much. I do have a feeling that, like, something about, like, the amount of times that you stir, Mm. like, made, like, a big difference, you know? Like, you, like, um, but I felt, I felt like I could not tell people, like, you need to stir 50 times in order to get, like, the right (laughs) thing. So I was like, it's going to be fine. Most likely it's going to be fine. (laughs) Is there anything else from your book that you would really recommend for readers to check out for Lunar New Year? Two things that I think are really popular for making during Lunar New Year would be either the fried sesame balls um, or the uh, coconut peanut. I can't remember if it goes coconut peanut or peanut coconut, but you you can figure it out. It's like coconut <laughs> peanut mochi balls. Uh, it's they're they're two different styles of ball recipes, but like the dough on the outside is kind of it's like a glutinous rice dough, so it's gluten free. Uh, it's really chewy with different kind of filling options inside. One is fried, and the other one is like kind of like a no bake style of recipe. Um, and those are really traditional to make during Lunar New Year uh, because they're round. They symbolize the moon in a sense. Um, and there's also like this very traditional kind of like Chinese style soup that you put the glutinous rice balls and boil them in a broth. They can be sweet or savory. So th- those are two really fun ones to make. What are you looking forward to making this year for Lunar New Year? 
I am really excited to make some hand-pulled noodles. I have not made that in a while. Um, it's always really fun when I do. Uh, noodles are another kind of symbolic food to make because they represent long life. Like the longer noodles you have, uh, the longer life you hopefully will live. So I always cringe a little bit when people like cut their noodles in half or something like that because you're really not supposed to do that. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And... Uh, making some more dumplings. I, I've been living in a very like bun-centric life lately that I honestly haven't made dumplings in a while, so I'm excited to make some of those for dinner. Thanks for listening, and my thanks to Christina Cho, the blogger behind Eat Cho Food and the author of the new cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. If you'd like to make Christina's Pawpaw's steamed cupcakes for Lunar New Year, the recipe is up on Food52 today. And by the way, as far as mooncake molds go, Christina's favorites are the plunger-style plastic molds because she finds them easier to use, and you can really have a lot of fun interchanging the patterns and using them for cookies and other baked goods, too. She finds a lot of her favorites on Etsy. This week's show was put together by Amy Schuster, Emily Hanhan, and Harry Sultan. What favorite recipe will you make for Lunar New Year? I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com. Or just tag me on Instagram at myglorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes and the Food52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating or review. Or send this episode to someone who you would love to share a mooncake with. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week.